to 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint the king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did in Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telema, Telema, Tel I am. I think it's Tel I am. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated them from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction, all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and he has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on, and went to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, When then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said they have brought from them the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote the destruction of the sinners the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. When did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And why did you pounce on the spoil and do what evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalekah, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. 
As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours, who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites." And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has, been made, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gabeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of our Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. All right, a lot of text there. If you're new with us, uh, this is what we do here at the Park Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we're, we're making our way through First uh, and Second Samuel. And uh, maybe for some of you, uh, reading texts like that, especially reading a whole chapter like that, is, is a bit unusual or, or foreign. Um, we, we, like it, we, we like doing that here uh, when, it, when it's possible and it's when, it's, when it's appropriate to read le- that length of, of Scripture because it allows you to hear, if nothing else, the full context of the chapter that we're going to teach through. And they're, they're actually, even in the reading of Scripture, the Holy Spirit is still moving, right? It's not just in the teaching. It's not like, wait, wait, wait till we get to, to, to what Kyle has to say about it or whatever the teacher has to say about it. It's even in the reading of the Scripture, the Holy Spirit might be quickening things in your mind and your heart. And so even Jeff reading all 35, while I know that it's long, it's very purposeful. And so um, our goal now is to unpack and ask the Holy Spirit, what do you have for us through this text? And, and uh, uh, we're picking up in a... Uh, a very pivotal time. Uh, if you've been with us the last four weeks, you know we've been in a glory and good in our series called Glory and Good, and, and we're now picking this back up after a four-week uh, break from 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel 15 is a pivotal point in where we are in, in the whole story of First and Second Samuel. Uh, this is the end um, of Saul, the emphasis on Saul. We will hear about him, we will read about him in other places as we go on in the text, but this is where the emphasis ends uh, for Saul, and next week we'll pick up uh, the, the new king, right? Uh, king David, who, who we've discussed in, in flashes and shadows before, but, but we want to look here at the end of, of Saul's reign, and, and if I could tell anyone who's asking about Saul, to, to, if there was one chapter to read what Saul was known as and marked by, it would probably be 1 Samuel 15. This is really the sum total of things we've walked through historically in the early chapters of 1 Samuel. And we see it coming to a head here. And you heard Jeff read it from the scriptures where the Lord has now rejected Saul. He's rejected Saul as king and leader over God's nation of Israel. But I want to start with a question, so keep your Bible open, keep your First Samuel notebook open if you have it. Um, what is the worst kind of disobedience? What's the worst kind? And some of you are going, Kyle, that's a trick question, right? All disobedience, right? There, there's not one worse than the other. Maybe some of you thought about maybe a particular kind of disobedience or a sin, You see, there is a kind of disobedience on display 
in 1 Samuel 15. And we've said it before here a lot, right? That, that even delayed obedience is what? Disobedience. It's the same word. Well, I want to submit to you another phrase or another idea here. And what I believe is on play, in play here in 1 Samuel 15, and it's this idea of partial obedience. Not only is delayed obedience disobedience, partial obedience is disobedience. And I think that partial obedience, especially in the life of a believer, hear me, Christians, if you're here, that partial obedience in the life of a believer is one of the scariest things possible. Because there's just enough obedience to inoculate us, potentially, to the voice of God, to the leading of the Holy Spirit. When I think of the worst kind of disobedience, I think for a believer, it is that partial disobedience. He goes, Lord, I, I obeyed you 90%. And maybe you'd never say that, but that's in function what happens. And so we see partial obedience play out all over these pages of 1 Samuel 15. But let's start here in verse 1. What is obedience? What's obedience? Well, the Lord doesn't leave us hanging on that. He tells us in verse 1, this is what obedience is. Look at it. Listen to the words of the Lord. Samuel, right? The priest, the high priest, he's functioning as a prophet also here. He's talking to King Saul. He goes, listen, this is your job. When you were anointed king over Israel, you go back to those chapters. What was the thing that Samuel said over and over to him? Listen, here's what I want you to do. Listen to the word of the Lord. Listen to what the Lord says. And the word of the Lord comes through Samuel. But what do we find Saul doing constantly over and over and over again? He gives some version of obedience. He essentially does what he wants and then goes, God, aren't you pleased that I did what you wanted? Partial obedience. And so what obedience is, is listening to the words of the Lord. And what did the Lord say in this text from Samuel to King Saul? Wipe out completely the Amalekites. Everyone and everything. Um, This is one of those tough things to read in our Bibles. Let's just be honest especially with our Western minds, God just said to destroy a whole people group, the Amalekites. And not just, not just the people, but like everything. And on the surface, this is potentially problematic. But we must dig further. We must keep this in light of the whole of Scripture, right? The whole of our Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and from creation in Genesis all the way to new creation in Revelation, it reveals a God who is consistent, who is holy, who is just and good from creation to new creation all over the pages. And his judgment, hear me, that's what's on display here. His judgment reflects all of those things perfectly, even in the New Testament. God's judgment. Where do we see the climax of God's judgment? Think about this. In the New Testament, upon his son, the wrath of God is poured out. The son of God, the innocent one. 
And so if we hold that in, in tension a little bit with what was just said by, by Samuel to Saul about the, 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 this people, we understand that the Amalekites were a vicious people. You read in your Bible and, and even uh, in 1 Samuel 15, it alludes to their opposition of God's people Israel as far back as the Exodus. This was the nation, if like the, the singular, the primary nation who opposed God's people as they were walking through the wilderness. And you can read your Old Testament, you'll hear stories about this particular group of people and how vicious they were and how, how, the things that they were about, the things that they participated in. And Moses, he in fact went to war against them, right? This is the scene where Moses is lifting his hands and his hands get weary, right? And they droop and they lose the battle and his hands go up and they, they help him by propping up his hands. You know that story? That's against the, the Amalekites. And God has let generations pass and generations go. And the Amalekites haven't gotten better. And in fact, their reputation and the things going on in that nation has only gotten worse. You can read your Bible. I'm not going to explain what was taking place in that nation because there are kids in this room. It's egregious. The worst things you can think of times 10. And Samuel, in fact, alludes to that at the end when he takes King Agag, right? What does he say? He's like, now this sword will take you because your sword has, has made women childless. Like things that you can't fathom. But oftentimes we, we focus on the judgment of God and we forget about the patience of God. The patience of God, how he has delayed, not because he's slow in bringing judgment, because he's gracious and merciful. But the Bible says his patience has an end. And for the Amalekites, his patience had an end here. And I want you to hear me that this was an act of judgment and justice not an act of indulgence. Not an act of indulgence by a God who is just power hungry. No, this is God's judgment and justice on display. Wickedness was to be expunged as is fitting. And we who have lived in a culture that has experienced the light of Christian faith for centuries and centuries, this is hard for us to grasp. And I, I get that. I'm not making light of this text. We have difficulty imagining a culture so infected with sin that such a judgment is really just by God. Right? Anybody else wrestle with that? And we'll see another picture of it uh, here in a little bit that's earlier on in Genesis chapter 6. But here, God's call to Saul and Israel is to remove the Amalekites. In verses 2 through 7, you look at it in your Bible everything looks pretty good, doesn't it? Saul hears the word of the Lord from, from Samuel, and notice hearing doesn't mean, just because you hear the word of the Lord doesn't equate to all wholehearted obedience, by the way. Verses two through seven looks good. He's even merciful to the Kenites. You see that there? Extending them mercy. But then what happens in verses eight and nine? Let's, let's look at it in our Bibles. And he, that's Saul, took Agag the king of the Amalekites alive and devoted to destruction all the people at the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of sheep and of oxen and fattened calves and lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Uh-oh, partial obedience. 
God's word clearly came. He knew his mission. But what does the writer here say? He took the king. He took the king and he took, it's an interesting phrase there. It says, all that was good. In whose eyes? All that was good. God just said there was, there was nothing good there. Saul, the people. And listen to me. This is where we begin to get into trouble. When we begin to define what is good. When we begin to define what is good outside of what God has explicitly stated or said. Right? Even some of us, from this text, we looked at this, this call by God to want to wipe out the Amalekites. And we go, that's not good. Who said that? You? Your feeling? Or do we defer to a God who is holy, good, righteous, and just, and perfect in everything he does? That's what our faith calls for. But here we see Saul with partial obedience. Calling something good that is not good. In fact, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 gives us this warning. And some of us, we're guilty of this thing. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is on display with Saul. He's going, I'm going to be the one in charge. I'm going to be the one to take what's good and I'm going to discern what's right. And I want the king and I want this plunder for myself. And then verses 10 and 11, we get into even some more tricky ground here in the text. Where in verse 10 and 11, in light of what Saul has just done, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Okay, here we hear another voice of the Lord, right? First the voice from Samuel to Saul. Now the voice of the Lord to Samuel I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. What in the world? And in fact, in this text, it says that twice, the very last verse. Verse 35, the Lord regretted? Man, by the way, what a chapter to start back into 1 Samuel with, right? The Lord regretted? How, how does God, who knows everything, who is sovereign over all, who knows the beginning from the end, everything, how does he have regret? Great question. The word here in the Hebrew is, is most closely related to the word sorry. The Lord felt sorrow that he had made Saul king. Kyle still. How does God feel sorrow? A better question is not how does God feel sorrow. God has emotions. Our Bible tells us that. But why? Why does God feel sorry in this moment? Well, I think this shows us, gives us a picture of God's heart toward his people. That we don't have a God who is just distant and far off, but we have a God who is intimately involved with his people, so much so that he would feel emotions when a king, the king over his people, the king over Israel, isn't following his words. Why? Because God knows what's best for them. And what's best for them is that they have a king who submits and surrenders to God's words. And so God, in this moment, in this moment where Saul doesn't listen to the word of God, feels sorry. He feels sorrow. Bruce Ware, in writing about this, um, he said, first, God knows the future and still responds in the moment in appropriate ways. I love that. This is not an inappropriate emotion for our God. 
Another way to say that is this, that God knows what will happen in the future with all things and all people. However, in the moment when those actions occur, what occurs here with Saul, in real time, because God is involved with his people, he still feels an appropriate emotion. I'm still struggling. Well, let me give you, a, this is an imperfect example, but maybe this will help you, you, you a little bit with it. Have you ever um, walked with a family member or maybe a close friend um, who, who was sick, like really sick, like terminally sick? And uh, you, you knew that it, at some point soon, like you, you knew the outcome, the inevitable outcome, unless a miracle that God brought in, right? Um, what would take place in their life? That you would lose them from this earth. And that moment occurs. That moment of loss occurs. I don't think I've ever met anyone who would step back and go, well, I don't feel grief. I don't, I don't feel sorrow because I, I knew it was coming. I had expected it. No, what happens is in, if you've ever been there like I've been there, in that moment, you're still hit with all of those emotions. You're hit with that sorrow. You're hit with that grief. That's what's taking place here. God knew that Saul was going to fail. But in the moment of failing, God felt sorrow. Sorrow for his people. Sorrow for the flourishing that he longs for them to have. And so don't for a minute think that God is being reactive, right? Like he didn't know something was taking place. He's well aware of it. However, maybe the best commentary on this section, this verse, is found within this text itself. Right? The Bible interprets the Bible. Um, verse 29. Look at it. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he, God, is not a man that he should have regret. And people point to this text all the time and go, see, your Bible just contradicts itself. It just said that God regretted and then it said that God cannot regret. To which I say, fair assessment, but it's missing the point. The point of verse 29 is to show you and I that God's regret, God's sorrow, even some of your translations say that God repented, okay? That his sorrow, his regret, his repentance is not like yours. It's not like mine. That's why my example even for us was imperfect. That God's sorrow and his repentance and his regret is perfect, our repentance is what? Turning from what? Sin to God. God doesn't sin. He's perfectly holy. He's perfectly just. But he has emotions. He has sorrow. He has regret in those moments because of what his people that he's intimately involved with are missing out on. I can't wait for you to explain what your church talked about to your friends on Sunday. <laughs> the Amalekites and God's regret. But listen, this is where we dive into the deep in church and go, Lord, Holy Spirit, speak to us. But if we're not careful, we'll take those two things and go, well, okay, that's what the text is about. The text is actually about obedience and disobedience. What causes God's sorrow is Saul's disobedience. And so for our last remainder of this time, I want to quickly look through the text and I want to look at obedience versus disobedience. And really it's the anatomy of what disobedience looks like. Disobedience in someone's life. And the first thing is this, that obedience, obedience to God is rooted in correct fear. And disobedience, obviously, then is rooted in the wrong fear. 
What's the right fear, Kyle? The right fear will be and always will be the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 7, right? The, the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. The rightful place in worship of God and disobedience in our lives, just like it was in Saul, is rooted in misplaced fears. Misplaced fears in our lives. And so all over the, the text of 1 Samuel 15, all right, the, the, the four Ps are found. The fear of, of, of people, the fear of losing popularity, the fear of Saul losing power in his position all over the text. That is the motivation and that is where Saul's disobedience is rooted in the potential loss of all those things. The fear of what people will think, the fear of losing his position or his power. And Samuel comes and he confronts Saul. This is like almost like a comical scene here. He comes and he confronts uh, Saul and he's like, Saul, like, like he walks up on like Saul celebrating. Saul's like, hey, our, man, look, praise be to God. I did it all. I did all that the Lord commanded of me. And did you hear in the text? Samuel's like, then what's the voice I hear? I hear the ox. I hear the sheep and the goats that you saved. Saul's disobedience is all around him. In verses 13 and 14, literally it says that Saul set up what? A monument for himself. You want to know what Saul's about? There it is. Himself. Now, as opposed to Moses, who defeated the same group of people who set up a monument, and that monument, guess what, was an altar. And the name of that altar is this, the Lord is my banner. It doesn't give us what Saul's name of his monument is, but it would probably be something like this. Saul is great. Look at Saul. And so Saul's disobedience is rooted in the wrong fear. Our disobedience is rooted in the wrong fear. Saul then blame shifts, verse 15 and verse 21. Going, well, actually, uh, Samuel, when you, when you put it like that, uh, that I didn't fully obey, it actually wasn't me. Did you see that in the text? He said, the people. The people, the people. The people went and got them. The people got the animals. The people brought them here. It was them, them, them. And then ultimately, even in blame shifting, he like tries to pin it back on God, which never works, right? He's like, we did this. I mean, they did this because we were gonna worship with them. We were gonna make sacrifices. God, aren't you pleased? Look at, us. Look at what we did. And God's like, no, you didn't listen to my word. Saul kept King Agag. Why would he keep the king? Because keeping a foreign king that you've conquered in battle was a, a status symbol, a power symbol, a power play. To march around, to humil just, just to humiliate. And God goes, no, this with the Amalekites was not about indulging you, Saul. This was about my justice, about my glory, about my fame being known. And Saul, in turn, in your partial obedience, you have made it about you. Because Saul's fear was not in the Lord. It was in everything else. The second thing we see around obedience and the anatomy of disobedience is that obedience is keeping God's actual commands. Disobedience seeks a partial version of God's commands. This is what I've been saying. This is why I think this is so lethal. This is why this is so uh, damaging and damning to God's people. Saul had his own agenda at play in attacking the, the Amalekites. 
90%. He was okay with 90% of obedience. And that's a problem. Disobedience in all of its forms and fashions in our own life looks to cut corners, looks to obey partial of what God has commanded. This is the lie of the garden, right? All the way back to Genesis 3, standing in front of the tree with Adam and Eve, right? Satan goes, did God really say? Right? Did he, did he really say that? Man, you guys have done everything, but did he really say? You don't think Saul had that same tune playing in his mind? Did God really say that you couldn't take the king or those animals? Now let's bring this one a little closer to home. What partial version of God's commands in our life are we okay with? Have we been justifying? Have we been cutting corners, right? The most prized commodity in our area, let's be honest, is not wealth. It's time. That's the most prized currency in our area. And God says, you know how much of your time I want? 75 minutes on a Sunday? No. He said, all of it. All of your time is mine because I want to redeem all of your time. Some of you are like, well, how about just 70%? Look at your schedule. This week, I challenge you, look at your schedule and say, Lord, is this submitted to you in obedience? How about sharing the gospel, sharing your faith? Something biblically all of us are called to. You say, well, I don't, Kyle, I don't have the gift of an evangelist. That's not what it says. It says we all do the work of an evangelist to share our faith and share our lives, to share our stories of grace, to be proactive in that, to be praying in that. Sabbath keeping, right? This goes back to time. Well, I, 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 Kyle, I, I know, I try to keep Sabbath when, when I can. That's not what he says. Financial stewardship, purity, holiness. Genesis 6 is the other place where God says, I regret it. Now, in fact, that, that word is used 29 times in your Bible, but only twice is it used in the terms and ways that it's used here in 1 Samuel 15 and Genesis 6, where God looks across the world, the man, and he goes, I regret making man. Read it in Genesis 6. Except there was one righteous. What was his name, class? Noah. That's right. And Genesis 6.22 says about Noah that he did all that God commanded him. Can you imagine if Noah would have cut corners? Like seriously. Or been like, let me kind of put my agenda on this. Listen, when you and I obey God's actual commands, you will discover that oftentimes obedience requires unpopular actions. That when we as a community, when we as families, when we as individuals take the stances of God's actual commands and precepts, precepts that we prayed in the opening liturgy, those will lead us to unpopular spaces. Unpopular spaces in, in culture, right? When we take a stance, maybe it's on, on marriage because of God's design or gender and sexuality. Or on the sanctity of all of human life, both for the preborn child and for the immigrant but also maybe even a little closer to home, they'll make you unpopular with your kids. Where you go, you know what? 
We're not going to play soccer 483 hours a week. And your kid stomps their foot. And you go, okay, we will. Listen, obeying God's actual commands in your life, in your personal holiness, in your conduct, in the way that you live, will lead to some unpopular results. I'm afraid what we often, and I say we, because it's we, what we often find is we pat ourselves on the back for obeying. Haven't we done so good as a church? But then we realize that we've been obeying our own set or version of God's commandments rather than God's actual commandments. Listen, this is why we stress so heavily the process, the way of discipleship. Third, obedience is about yielding to God's order. Disobedience seeks solutions outside of God's order. This is what Saul is doing. Saul going, we did this to make a sacrifice to the Lord. That even of itself, church, is out of order. Who makes the sacrifices? Not Saul. Not the people. Samuel. Even in him going, but this is for God, is out of order. And listen, this goes back even to the fear piece, right? And, and, and Samuel says something very interesting in verse 17. Look at it with me. He says in verse 17 to Saul, he says, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Get this. Samuel is trying to reorder Saul. To go, Saul, you are making yourself little by yielding and putting your fear and trust in the people and popularity in your position. When, listen, the Lord has anointed you the head king over Israel. Why do you make yourself so small and miss out on what God wants for you? And so many of us in here, that's our position. Listen, God has saved you through grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. He's called you a son. He's called you a daughter. But yet you live your life as what? You're still enslaved to sin. And it's like the Holy Spirit this morning would go, no, listen, why do you think of yourself so little when the King of Kings has called you his own? He set you free. Why? For freedom's sake, you've been set free. To glorify God, but yet you still walk around as if you're enslaved to those things. And Saul's, or Samuel's trying to lift Saul's eyes, but Saul's eyes will not see. And then he makes a statement that is really profound. In verse 23, he says, your rebellion or your disobedience is as of the sin of divination. Whoa. Um, Saul, Samuel says to him, you might as well have consulted a magician for what to do as king. You might as well have have sought them out for divine revelation, which interestingly is what Saul will do in 1 Samuel chapter 28. We'll get there in 45 weeks. Um, <laughs> John Piper uh, says this. He says, divination is turning away from the counsel or word of God and wisdom of God to another source for how you should go in life. That's what divination is turning to another source outside of the counsel and word of God for how you should go. 
And listen, for some of you, this is going to be taking it too far. For others of you, this is going to hit you right where you are. And I'm okay with that. This includes, in our current context, seeking how to go in life through things like horoscopes, astrology, seeking out mediums, seeking out other people to tell you what the future holds or what someone in the future is saying or past is saying, using crystals to bring about peace or wholeness or cleansing or healing. Some of you are like, Kyle, that stuff is so innocent. No, it's not. And I say this with all love. No, it's not. It is seeking counsel. It's seeking wisdom from another spiritual realm. That's divination. Going, tell me the future. Tell me how to live. Tell me what to do in my life. Tell me what job to take. Tell me how to navigate or to do this. That is what Samuel is saying to Saul. Listen, that's what your rebellion is like. And some of you are tiptoeing into those things. Some of you maybe are fully submerged. And by the grace of God, I want to call you out of that and from that this morning. Some of you just, you know, you're going, it's innocent. You're playing with it. Listen, don't play with that. Don't even go down that road. Don't even kick that door open for the enemy to come in. Why? Because the word of God is sufficient. The way of God is sufficient. Obedience to his command, you will find flourishing. In those other ways, you will ultimately find destruction, confusion, confusion, and loss every time. Or how about something a little more subtle as turning inward to the small but powerful idol of self? I'll see if my feelings align with your way, God. I'll see if my feelings align with your word. You see, disobedience always seeks a name for itself and not for God. It sets more weight on the thoughts of self than on the thoughts of God's word and God's way. In disobedience, what we find is, is that it enthrones ourselves and kicks God off of his throne. Verse 30, all the way through this text, Saul is still trying to make a name for himself. Samuel, please, he's pleading with him, go with me and honor me in front of the people. Did you see that? It's almost gross in the text. But church, we do this all the time in our disobedience. God, I know, I know I've partially obeyed or maybe I've just fully disobeyed, but still honor me. Gordon Keedy uh, in his book called The Dawn of a Kingdom, uh, he says this, he says, what a warning this is to our generation in the church which presumptuously assumes that our taste in spiritual consumerism must always correspond with God's approval and blessing. Our taste, what our preference is, of course that's what God wants, is it? What does God want then should be the last question we ask. And it's here in our text. What God wants is obedience. You say, Kyle, that's legalism. No, it's God's word. Obedience is the only thing that truly pleases God. Read Isaiah 1, read Psalm 40, verse 6. And for some of you going, wait, if obedience is the only thing that truly pleases God, I'm in trouble, right? Uh-oh, my car ride over here, I'm in trouble. You see, this is actually really, really good news. God delights in obedience over sacrifice is what the word says here. 
in verse 22. You see, the word of God, now we move forward to the New Testament, that Jesus is the ultimate obedience. That when it says that obedience is the only thing that truly pleases God, that he, he, he requires obedience over sacrifice, he's not looking at you and me. He's looking ahead to his son, Jesus, to go, he is the ultimate obedience for you and me, for Jesus to obey really was better than sacrifice. This is why no one had to die on Jesus's behalf, that his obedience, Jesus's obedience is what enabled his sacrifice. His sacrifice for who, himself? No, for who? The disobedient. For you and me who cannot stand under the weight to go that God only is truly satisfied in obedience. We all fail except for one, Jesus. And that's the gospel. That's the good news that we stand in light of this morning. That our king is not Saul. Thank goodness, right? That instead the spirit of Saul is in all of us. Our king is not even David who we're gonna talk about, right? But our king is Jesus, the one who represents us before God in perfect obedience, which we are now called into. And I love how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 16. He says, you've now been called in as Christians, covered by Christ's obedience. You're now called into the obedience of faith. That's the obedience we're now called into is that we don't obey God so that he doesn't strike us. No, he's already struck his son so that we stand under that striking, we stand under that judgment poured out on him, and we stand in Christ's obedience, right? Fully yielding to God's actual commands, to what? To live and to love Jesus with all that we are. That's the gospel. That's 1 Samuel 15. And so um, Matt and Jenny, I want you to come up. Um, we're going to take communion together. And uh, this is the meal where we partake and remember the sacrifice, but the sacrifice that was made after the life of obedience. John 17, verse 4, Jesus says, Father, remember, I just preached this three weeks ago. I'm sure you've forgotten it by now. But um, Father, I've glorified you by doing all that you commanded Father, I brought you glory by obeying you fully. And so Jesus' obedience is what enables his sacrifice that we enjoy this morning. And listen, some of you are in this room. And as we walk up, as we take the elements, the Holy Spirit is quickening those things in your life where there is partial obedience. Let's call it what it is, disobedience. That for some of you, maybe it's something like bitterness, or unforgiveness that you're harboring, that's allowing this root and this stronghold in your life that the Lord wants to free you from. For others of you, you can put your finger on it and say it's this thing or that or this behavior. For others of you, it's just this unsettledness because the Spirit is wanting to do something in you. He's wanting to draw you into a deeper place with Him of His love and His grace and His mercy. And for whatever reason, you've been rejecting that. Listen, stop rejecting because that is where you will find what you're actually searching for. You will find the peace that has been so elusive. You'll find the freedom. 
You'll find all those things. Maybe you've been seeking outside sources on. The Lord's like, I'm here. You've come to the right source. You've sought, you've exhausted all the other options and the Lord goes, here I am for you. His goodness is running after you. And this morning your lives would collide and you'd experience his grace and mercy for the first time. Listen, that is an invitation to all of us this morning. And so hosts and ushers come down. I'm gonna pray for us quickly. And they're, they're gonna sing as we take communion um, and grab the elements. But let's spend this time before the Lord asking him to search us. Father, help us to steward this moment in and through the power of your Holy Spirit that you have given to us. Search us, O God. Search our hearts, search this church, O God, that we might be found in obedience of faith, as Paul says. Show us, illuminate the areas in our lives that we are disobedient. Father, for those running from you, I pray that this morning, actually that running would end in you end in meeting you here, confessing that they're needy and that they found their ultimate in you. Do that this morning, I pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.